welcome to the Education for Social Change podcast. I am Lucas Walrich, and in this podcast, I'm interviewing educators, researchers, innovators, policymakers, and entrepreneurs to hear how they are trying to shape education to make the world a better place, one way or the other. In this episode, I'm speaking with Robin Goldberg, who is the Chief Experience Officer of Minerva Schools. Minerva has really rethought what college education can be. They teach online and the students, rather than being stuck on a campus, get to live and work in many different countries throughout their studies. I think the way Minerva has designed a modern curriculum and has built an online platform where, online, where teaching online is not a limitation but an opportunity holds many insights for all of us who care about education that makes a difference. I found the conversation with Robin very insightful and inspiring, so I hope you will enjoy the conversation. Okay, so I'd like to start by asking you what issues Minerva set out to address. What's the, the context uh, that you found yourself starting in? Yeah, so when we first started conceiving of Minerva, it was really taking a look around the world and looking at the kinds of people who were leading the institutions that we all care about, government, corporates, nonprofits. And we realized that it is incumbent upon us to educate the next generation. Those who are going to take over those institutions, they are going to make the decisions that impact us all. And we recognize that we weren't educating this next generation in a way to prepare them for what was ahead. So Minerva was really conceived to nurture and educate the next generation of those who would impact society the most. If you think about higher ed, that's why higher education was started, was to educate those who would lead the great institutions. We just lost our way a bit. What do you mean by that? Because clearly the, the big institutions, the big higher ed institutions are around and they all say that they educate the leaders of tomorrow. What have they lost? Uh, absolutely. So when you start thinking about higher education today, especially that that people consider as um, the most impactful, right? There is limited access, both in terms of the number of spaces available for students, but also because of the costs. They've become so prohibitive for the majority of students. So imagine, though, you apply to a school and you get one of those coveted spots. What we were finding is students were going through graduating and leaving without the skills that employers were needing and wanting. So when you go out and you ask whether it's employers in the corporate world, if you ask law schools, medical schools, if you ask across any industry, People will say the skills most important are things like critical thinking, being able to be a creative problem solver, being an effective communicator. These are skills that are valued in the workplace. The problem is students were graduating from universities after paying large, large sums of money without those skills and without the ability to be impactful. So we took a big step back and we said, let's think about how do we make those years really meaningful? Let's think about What do we want to educate? So what do we want to make sure the students come out of the education with? What are the learning outcomes? How do we want to teach in a way that's really meaningful? And how do we think about doing that in a way that is very broad and will impact regardless of what they want their future lives to be post-graduation? To me, that still sounds a lot like the traditional liberal arts approach of educating broadly and kind of focusing on skills. 
um, what are the most striking differences between the way you do that and some of the other universities that have the kind of general curriculum do that? That's a great question, Lucas. So thank you for asking me to dig deeper. So here's the difference is many schools say they teach skills like critical thinking. But if you ask the provosts and the presidents of most universities, they don't have a, a deliberate answer as to how they do it. So what they'll say is a student comes in and they'll take, for instance, you know, an intro to economics course and an intro to sociology and a writing seminar and maybe one of the science electives so that they get exposure to a lot of things. And the hope is that by getting all this broad exposure, they'll become critical thinkers. We don't believe that's the way to do it. We believe what you have to do is actually be very, very deliberate about teaching how people can think differently. So if you think about critical thinking and you ask someone, how do you teach it? It's actually very difficult to teach because it's not one thing. So what we did is we took, for instance, critical thinking and broke it into its component parts. If you're a critical thinker, you learn how to evaluate a claim. You learn frameworks for bringing in novel information. You learn how to break a problem into its component parts and dissect each one. So we teach our students the skills around critical thinking. We actually have developed distinct learning outcomes for critical thinking, creative thinking, effective communication, and effective interaction of complex systems. And we broke those into discrete learning outcomes. We have about 80 of them that not only do we introduce and teach, but we reinforce and reinforce throughout the education and we measure on every single one. And these skills are the skills that are then transferable in terms of any other area that they take them. So it's not a hope that they will actually learn these skills, but actually a foundational curriculum that we've developed to do it. Can you maybe give an example of one of the specific learning outcomes related to critical thinking and how you might go about teaching and then also assessing that? Sure. So um, an example around critical thinking is how do you evaluate a claim? So imagine the number of claims made, whether it's in headlines in the media, a claim made in a scientific report, a claim made just in a persuasive argument that someone is making. What we do is we give our students many examples, just like some I just gave you, and we have them dissect that. What makes a claim valid? How do you actually investigate the validity of the statistical significance of it if it is a scientific claim? How do you rebut? How do you look for counter arguments? The idea is to teach them to become just automatic in terms of how they evaluate the information that is coming at them. It's so easy to take things at face value. So what are the automatic brain triggers that should go off the minute you see a claim? So let's say you see a claim in a newspaper headline that says 70% of the population believes X. First question I want someone to ask is, well, 70%, I'd like to know who the sample size was. Gee, I'd like to understand how the questions were asked. I wonder if there were biases in that survey so that we're not just accepting things at face value, but actually digging to make sure that there is a principled approach to the evaluation. That, that makes a lot of sense. So what does the assessment or the evaluation look like? How do you figure out if you managed to teach those skills? Oh, so very fair. So we have, like I said, 80 different learning outcomes that we're trying to teach our students. And we've developed rubrics for every single one of them. So for instance, evaluating a claim, a student may be studying environmental impact, uh, the environmental impact based on some scientific studies. And they may be evaluating claims in that study. And the 
faculty member who is assessing the student may come back with some feedback. Gee, you did a really great job here, but you ignored this really important point, or you missed this in your evaluation. The student will have another opportunity to evaluate a claim in another class, and that faculty member will know, gee, here's how far advanced they were in that concept. Let me actually push them harder to develop this skill even further. So the beauty of the way we've designed the Minerva curriculum and the way we've designed our assessments is that students are assessed on a skill in one class, but then reassessed again and again in different classes to make sure that not only they learned it, but they can apply it in many different contexts. So it's a really uh, deep way to give formative feedback. So one of the things that we know from the science of learning is it's not just about deciding here's what we want to teach, but it's about making sure that the students are on a learning journey, that you introduce a concept, that they understand the concept over time, and then they apply it over and over and over again. And that's something that's been really important in how we think about how we teach. So it's more than just what we teach, but it's the what and the how. Yeah, I definitely want to dig a bit deeper into into the how, but maybe you can introduce at a very high level how you teach. What are the main differences between the student experience at at Minerva and at a at an Ivy League school, for example? Sure. So the how we teach is something that we feel is critically important to ensure that the students are learning more than we're teaching. So we use a very active learning approach. So we call it fully active learning. What that means is when the student comes to class, they've already done pre-work. They've already read some assignments. They've already put some work into just trying to understand the concepts of that class, of that lesson. When they get to class, they fully engage in the topic. So what that means, we have about 50 different learning techniques that we use to engage the students. So they're not sitting passive listening to a lecture. As a matter of fact, uh, we tell our faculty, we don't want them to ever speak for more than four minutes. The idea is to set up situations, context cases, and have the students engage in the material. We use debates. We use polling. We use breakout groups. We have about 50 different techniques that we use so that every class session is very, very different. What it means is that the students are sitting at the edge of their seats. They never know when they're going to be called on. They never know when they're going to be brought into a conversation. And the idea is that their brains are fully engaged in processing the material. So again, it's not just information transmission. It is very much about actually uh, using the material in a really concrete way. One thing that I find a bit surprising with this approach is that you decided to deliver it online. Because in my in my understanding of university, there's no point in having face-to-face lectures, but there's quite a strong point in having face-to-face seminars and, and that kind of interaction. Why did you decide that that could also be done online? Yes. Yeah, so it's so interesting because I think the immediate assumption is if you were to do a small seminar, it would be better to put everybody in a room together and give them a chance to interact. But it's interesting. There's all kinds of limitations when you do that. And what we realized is we could offer a better learning environment if we put it online. So we built our own proprietary platform and it is designed to be an ideal classroom format. So what does that mean? If you go into Minerva's forum, 
you have an opportunity in a class to see every single person who's in class with you. You get a chance to see their reactions. You get a chance to engage with them in a way much better than even if you were sitting in a physical room. So if I'm the faculty member, not only can I see every student, I can make sure that they're engaged, I can call on them, but I can use tools. For instance, I can keep track of talk time, something that's almost impossible to do in a physical classroom. You try to give everybody time to talk, but we actually can use the technology as a tool to help the faculty member. What else can you do because it's built on a platform? You can go into breakout groups instantaneously, but not just random breakout groups. So imagine a traditional classroom and you want people to break into groups of two or three to discuss something for five minutes. By the time all the chairs are moved around, you know, it's taken 10 minutes and the students are like, wait, what were we about to talk about? Using some of the techniques that we know have historically helped in student learning, we've been able to simplify and build into the platform to make it really easy for the class to run. Um, polls, using that information to decide who goes into breakout groups, quickly assessing who's understanding a concept or not. So from a classroom perspective, it's really still an incredibly compelling environment. Our students will tell you they know the faculty very well, incredibly well, just after a few class sessions. And for our faculty who've taught in other universities, they constantly tell us that they know the students better than they ever have before. But there's another really important benefit of it being online, and that is that we record every session. So imagine you've just had a seminar. It's not that that session is now gone and you have to remember what was discussed. The faculty member goes through the session and can grade every student on their contributions, on their understanding of the concepts, and can give them, as I mentioned earlier, that formative feedback. And that's what makes this such a powerful learning tool. The other piece is something I was referring to earlier as well, which is the ability to track progress across all your classes. So there's pretty much no university on the planet where one faculty member will say, well, let me tell you how Lucas does doing in my class. This may be an area that you want to help work with him in yours, right? But there's this ability to look at the holistic learning of a student and ensure that that is actually helping the student to learn very different than sort of a silo learning experience. Yeah, that's that's something that's that I sometimes really lack in my in my own teaching, where I have no idea what students have been told before, um, how they are they are acting on the feedback. So I think that sounds fascinating. Is that kind of very standardized the way in which that's uh, accessible to instructors, or are they expected to to talk to each other? How does that work? Yeah, it's, it is all built into the technology. So that's the beauty of Forum is it's really about creating a learning environment that ensures the students are achieving the learning outcomes. That's what it comes down to. So having all of that built in, having all the classes recorded on Forum, all of the grading being put into Forum, all of that being done on consistent rubrics. Now, what it does require is training of the faculty, and we certainly do that for all of our faculty and all of our partners' faculty, because it's super important that people understand how to take advantage of all of these pieces. But in terms of it just being standard, it's why we built the system that we did, because when it comes down to education, we can't hope it happens. It can't be haphazard. It has to be intentional. Yeah, uh, that's, that makes sense. 
And as I, I understand it, a big part of the Minerva education are four kind of foundation the liberal arts uh, courses. Could you briefly explain how they work and how they fit into the, the four-year journey? Yeah, so one of the things that we realized is it was really important to give every student a common foundation, a foundation of skills that they could then apply regardless of what they decided to major in to go forward. And that's where these four core competencies came into play. And I'll mention them again because they are so critical to our general education. They are critical thinking, creative thinking, effective communication, and effective interaction. And interactions, both human, but also systems. So how complex systems interact. Now, you know, those four are all very big buckets. But when you start to break them down, you start to see that there are common elements across each that are going to apply, whether they want to go into the sciences, whether they want to go into business, social sciences, whatever their career trajectory or their educational trajectory may be from there. Um, The other important thing about each of these sort of core areas is that we take them and we apply them in different contexts. So what we've done in our first year curriculum is we have four cornerstone courses that every student takes at Minerva. And what we do is we weave those through with something called the big questions. So big questions are huge societal challenges. None of us have the answers to, but if you put your lens of critical thinking, creative thinking, effective communication, looking at complex systems all together, it allows you to start to at least think about these questions. So I'll give some examples. You know, how do we feed the world? How do we ensure the world's water supply? Why do people commit crimes? Why do people go to war? I mean, these are not easy questions. There's no yes or no answer. But it is about how do you take that and start to look at it from the lens as a scientist, as an economist, you know, as a social scientist? How do you want to think about these big problems and how one decision you may make or one interpretation may impact how you move forward and address it? What I'm sometimes uh, wondering about is how well it works to teach these skills in a way that's not dependent on subject expertise. And of course, that's one of the big kind of curriculum fights that has been going on for decades. Do we need deep expertise in a specific subject to then tack the skills onto that? Or can we really focus on teaching those skills? How are you experiencing that? Does it, does it work to look at these questions for students who don't have particularly deep understanding of any component part of the system? Oh, so I think the key is what are you trying to teach? So when we think about how we've structured our general education, I don't expect a student to become an expert in water supply or in poverty alleviation or, you know, how do you prevent war? I want them to think about these things because they may have to make a decision on electing an official or a policy choice or, or whatever it may be. So I want them to be able to understand it. But it's more important for us to help them develop the skills of how do you come into a really big, complex problem and start to break it apart and to think about it in really different principled ways. So, you know, does it work? I can give you a couple of proof points that we have seen again and again, which gives us the confidence it is working. So one is, as I mentioned, we look at our own rubrics and we can see how they move on those learning outcomes. Second, we've used some objective assessments. And in doing that, it's an assessment that's used 
you know, at 400 other colleges and universities across the U.S. And it measures things like critical thinking, creative problem solving, communication skills. And what we found is our cornerstone curriculum, that first eight months the students are with us, they're able to advance in those skills faster and much more advanced than on any other college campus over four years. Now, why does that happen? Because it's such a deliberate focus on teaching these skills. But, you know, those are assessments. Then let's look at the practical side of it. So our students go out, they do internships, they go out and our graduates have now gotten jobs. And we're getting feedback from the employers that our students are able to walk into an environment, walk into a novel situation they've never been in before, and are able to quickly assess the situation and bring value in terms of really thinking about the challenges that are being presented and how to think about solutions. And it's very, very consistent. They're not coming back and saying, gee, they knew every economist or they could quote every scientific report on this subject. What they say is they're able to come in and they're able to think. And it's been really tremendous to see that that is across, whether it's, you know, technology companies, whether it's, you know, our students that go to Wall Street, whether or not they're going to nonprofits, whether they're working in consulting firms, it's across the board, the ability to apply those skills. So that gives us a tremendous amount of confidence that this is indeed working. That's great to hear. One of the things that I found striking in, in doing some background reading is how strongly the focus that other universities have on research is often framed as a problem, that that research detracts from, from teaching and from being student-focused. While here in the UK, the rhetoric is very clear that any good university has to be research-intensive, and otherwise they aren't able to deliver strong teaching. Um, so I'm wondering where, where you think the, the mistake is in that line of reasoning or whether there might be some truth in it, whether Minerva might be limited in any way by not having a research focus. Well, and you're absolutely right. We are not a research focus, but it doesn't mean we don't value research and our faculty are not deeply engaged in research. As a matter of fact, we've structured our academic year so that our faculty are working for the two semesters the students are in, which is September through essentially the end of April. And then they have four full months to focus on their research over the summers. And many of them are engaging our students as interns and as research assistants. So we do care a lot about research. That said, when we are hiring our faculty, and most of our faculty are full-time faculty, they come to Minerva because they care about students, they care about the education that's being delivered, and they want to put the time and energy into that. So we really do screen for people who care a lot about teaching. Um, they value the student interactions. As a matter of fact, they're constantly asking to engage in other ways aside from just what happens in the classroom, because that's a really important part of why they got into academics. So for anybody, you know, who is interested in the balance, I think that is a good way to think about Minerva versus it being just uh, one extreme or the other. But for our undergrads, it is very much about teaching them. Yeah, makes sense. Um, what are the things that you can't deliver online? Because it's not, not a pure online experience. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting thing to note, and I, I'm going to answer your question. But the one thing I just want to ground with is, you know, what we've just talked about, the academics, the curriculum, the pedagogy, the technology, that all in itself is an amazing educational sort of system, if you will. And not only are we doing that at Minerva, we're actually now providing that 
to partners. And what is beautiful is it can get paired with any other components that a university or college wants to offer. So in the case of the Minerva Schools at KGI, which is our undergraduate and graduate experience, um, we've paired all of that academic rigor with a residential program that is truly global in nature. So our hope was to prepare those who truly could have a global perspective and be global leaders. So our residential program is really unique. The students spend their first year in San Francisco, and then every year after that, spend the year in two different other cities around the globe. So first year, San Francisco. The second year, they spend a semester in Seoul, Korea, then Hyderabad, India. The third year, Berlin, then Buenos Aires. And the fourth year, London and Taipei. And then they come back to San Francisco for graduation. Now, we decided to pair that amazing global rotation because we wanted the complementary parts of our education to be getting out into the world and doing projects, meeting the locals and understanding how to take their education and make it relevant in these settings all over the world. So Minerva Schools at KGI offers an unbelievable global educational experience that pairs with the academics. But just as well, we have other partners who don't have quite as complex of a global rotation, but still bring the academics and pair it with their on-campus experience. Is there any other example where, where it's paired with something else that you would say is also really valuable, just uh, places to focus somewhere else? Sure. Um, one of our partners is the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and they are an engineering school, right? Obviously, science and technology sort of says it all, but they have engineering programs and science programs. And I think for them, you know, they realized that they wanted to graduate those into these fields with a much broader perspective than just the functional area that they've focused on. So they've paired our cornerstone courses, the ones we've just talked about, with their engineering courses. And their students, historically, it's been the honor students, but opening up to a broader set of their undergrads can pair the cornerstones with their introductory engineering courses, science courses, so that they span, instead of it being a one-year general education, as we do at Minerva, they just span the courses over their first two years. But it's a way to complement all of the science engineering expertise with also those problem-solving skills, decision-making skills. If you think about what we're trying to do is, is aim people with tools that are going to last them for the rest of their lives in whatever context. And HCUST, as they go by, I think saw that they wanted their students to graduate with that comprehensive skill set. Okay, I'd like to know a little bit more about your global rotation, though, because it definitely sounds like fun. It sounds like an amazing opportunity to spend time in so many places. Um, what are you doing to make sure it actually has an educational benefit? Yeah, the global rotation is definitely something that sparks everyone's interest and excitement. Um, I will tell you, it is hard. It sounds easy. It sounds fun. I'm going to be jet setting around the, the world and I'm going to go like pop into these cities. But let me tell you, when you are, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old and you're flying into a new place where maybe you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you know, getting adjusted and being able to come into a community into society and find relevance and be a part of it versus being a tourist. This is not about just travel. This is about engaging with locals in really meaningful ways. So the way that we help to ensure that 
is we have teams on the ground in each of these cities that work with the students uh, with civic partners. So we go out and we reach out to all kinds of different organizations in the cities that have challenges, that have questions that they're trying to answer and want some additional time, energy and thinking around it, especially from, you know, some fresh younger talent and their students work on projects. So while they're in a city, they will work on challenges that are relevant to that specific city. And what that enables them to do is to look at it from the lens of that culture, to get involved with people who are trying to improve things and make things better in that society, and to actually have an impact while they're there, much more than just, as I said, as a, a visitor. Could you give an example for what such a project might look like? Sure. So um, let me just take Buenos Aires as one example. So we will have anywhere from 30 to 40 different projects the students will choose from, but I'll give just a couple of examples. So you see the range. One project may be working with the Ministry of Education, which our students did. And there, one of the challenges was looking at the high school dropout rate. And here, the Ministry of Education was trying to figure out what do we do both from a student perspective, but also from a teacher's perspective? How do we try and make, you know, some kind of programmatic difference or policy difference to improve the dropout rates. And our students spent a semester coming up with different ideas. Obviously, they bring an interesting lens because many of the Minerva students care about education. They're also young. So they could think about, boy, if I put myself in those shoes or, you know, let me think about friends who went through the same kind of challenge. So they'll come back and at the end of a few months, come back with recommendations presenting to the Ministry of Education about what they believe are good go-forward programs and policies to approach. So that might be students interested in education and policy work. There are students who are interested in business and e-commerce. They might work with someone like Mercado Libre um, and look at e-commerce in Latin America. Some interesting challenges there. Use of credit cards is much less. Um, delivery to the door sometimes very, very difficult. So whereas you might look at a parallel business in you know, the United States or in Europe and say, oh, no problem. Let's just put an online e-commerce site up and we'll deliver direct to door. Some really interesting challenges. So there might be a team of people who are working on that. There could be another group of people working. We had an artist um, in the Buenos Aires area, and she was trying to use her art for social good. And students who are interested in that aspect of culture and art and dance, how to essentially bring that into a different venue. So it just depends on the interests of the students. But when they get to a city, there will be a long list of projects and the students will say, gee, here's where I want to put my energies and here's where I want to transfer what I'm learning. Some of them will be more business focused and some will be more social impact focused. But that's an important part of their time in every city. Yeah, they sound like fascinating projects. Are they explicitly linked to, to the learning or is it more an extracurricular aspect? So the first year, it is linked to their learning. So the first year, these civic projects are required and they are what they turn in at the end of the year to show that they've learned all of these core foundational skills. And it gives them the opportunity and the exposure to locals. So as I said, it's mandatory in the first year, but after that, it is an option. So some students may decide, gee, 
I have my own ways I want to pursue my extracurriculars. They may have their own contacts. They may have actually found an internship that they continue to do, even though they're traveling around the world. So sometimes the projects don't work out for every student, but they're not intended to. But the idea is to make this a way for them to engage in the cities. What I think every Minerva student learns right away is if you're going to be in these cities, take advantage of being in the cities. Don't just go there to be there, but go and actually engage. And this is a way that we've helped to enable that engagement. Yeah. And you already said that it's not easy to, to move around the globe all the time. And also some of the things you mentioned around teaching, um, being watched a lot, being cold called and so on. That's that's probably also not, not all that easy for students. Yeah. Um, how is their mental health and how are you supporting that? Yeah. Um, well, first off, when we admit students to Minerva, We actually work hard to make sure that they are going to thrive in this environment, um, which means they have to be students that are self-motivated and driven and have a good sense of, you know, their own sense of uh, abilities and wellness. But um, we do support them. We have an incredible mental health team that supports the students that focuses as much on wellness as anything else. So, you know, we do think about how to help them to address sort of the challenges that come with moving around the world. How do you think about giving yourself a break when you need to give yourself a break, when you need to actually step up to some challenges? But we have an incredible team. We have a global team. They support the students in every way you can imagine, everything from some group efforts that are really more preventative and around wellness to helping students with one-on-one -on -one support if they need that as well. It's a really important part of... Um, of this whole experience that the students, they start to grow up a little bit here and we give them room to be themselves, to, uh, to learn as they go. Not everybody is going to do everything perfectly right. We all know that. But what we want to do is give them a chance to start to grow up. So we have a tremendous number of support systems. That said, we don't overly coddle because we want them to actually learn what it is like to be responsible for yourself and, and for the others around you. For sure, yeah. And yeah, you already mentioned that you are very selective. Um, and I was wondering why, why that is, um, because to some extent you frame the intentional university as the right way forward for, for everyone. So why are you so selective? Well, we're so selective because exactly what we're talking about. Minerva is not easy, right? We put a lot of responsibility on them from an academic perspective to go out and engage in the cities, the global rotation, all of that. So we know that the Minerva experience itself is going to be is going to be a challenge. So we only select those that we believe will thrive. That said, it's why we're starting to partner with other organizations and other institutions, because the Minerva core education is absolutely designed to help every student, regardless of their level, where they are today, regardless of, you know, sort of where they want to go. So one of the things we're realizing is that if we partner with others, that educational model that people are now getting super excited about, we're getting calls where people are like, gee, Can we just have that? And the answer is, sure, you can bring it into your environment. And like I said, pair it with maybe 
a different kind of residential model that fits a different type of student. So let me give one other example, Lucas, because this may help. We partnered with an institution in India and the students there were fantastic students, but didn't have the same kind of rigorous high school education that students had come from in the States and Europe and some of the other regions. And we had a lot of students who came to the university with less comfort with the English language. So we we offered an introductory sort of language class around expressive clarity. And it's all built on our same cornerstones. It was slightly modified to actually work for the students there a little bit better. And we were able to see such progress in 15 weeks from the time they started the semester to the end of the first semester in terms of their comfort, their abilities to just construct arguments and to put together meaningful paragraphs and to write. And as their administration agreed, these students are so much better prepared now for every other class they take. And what we were hearing from other faculty at the same university is those students who are in the Minerva courses are actually performing better in their other courses because they're learning how to learn. So there is something about our model where it doesn't just work for a very small group, it actually can be very broad. And that's one of the things that we're really focused on now is how to build partnerships with institutions who want to be innovative in how they're thinking about education, who want to be resilient. I mean, talk about the need for an institution to be able to survive a lot of different situations, COVID being one of them. But it's a way to take a model that we now see as working and to open it up to more students and make it more accessible. Yeah, that's great to hear. It makes sense to me that the global rotation needs to be quite selective, but the Minerva program overall can be yeah can be can be very much tailored. Um, since you mentioned COVID, how is that affecting you? Because in a sense, half of your program, the the online learning, should be working quite well. The other half, I imagine, is quite interrupted. Yeah. So, I mean, COVID, I think, obviously impacted every educational institution out there. Um, For us, it was pretty amazing that, you know, it didn't impact our academics at all, right? So we had an incredible benefit. We're very resilient as an organization. Number one, we're used to being remote in a lot of ways. So all of our faculty are remote. They're all over the world. But our students, too, are used to, obviously, their classes are exactly the same. They take classes on forum, even if they're on the global rotation. So for them, class looked exactly the same with the only difference being because many students ended up going back to their home countries, they might've been taking classes at odd hours of the, the day and night. So that was one big change. But other than that, classes went on as planned. We finished out the semesters. We still achieved the learning outcomes. They still did all of their final projects. As a matter of fact, for our graduating seniors, they do a capstone. And um, a capstone is a two-year project that is the culmination of all their learning. They put a tremendous amount of work into it. And the month of May for us is when the students really bring that to culmination. And they do a few things. One is they teach a class to other students and to faculty on the subject that they've been an expert in. Well, those classes are all on forum. Those all happened without a hitch. Second thing they do is they defend their capstone all happens on forum. They all did that without a hitch. Uh, The place we had to reimagine was graduation. So, you know, many people just essentially uh, either punted completely and didn't really do a graduation or they recorded a bunch of, you know, talks or lectures or speeches and, and just played those. 
we completely reimagined what our graduation would be because we felt our students deserved a celebration of achieving that milestone. And because we don't think about online being a limitation, we think about it as being an opportunity. So the way we approach every class session is the way we approach graduation, as well as all the other student experience components. So we were able to have big events on a global scale for all of our students that were impactful, emotional, uh, educational, in a way that I think we've just learned how to, how to make those happen. So for us, you know, our students didn't feel it was a miss other than not being in the same room as your friends. I think we were able to accomplish a lot even during this really crazy time. That's great to hear. Are there maybe a couple of practical thoughts that you have for, for educators who are not as used to dealing with an online situation? So of course, your platform is, is special, but maybe there are, there are other things that could be helpful. Yes. I mean, I think the biggest lesson that I guess I would share is sort of what I was just referring to a moment ago. And that is, do not assume that you can take whatever you did offline and just put it online right now. Don't assume you can just go with the same lesson plans. It's, you know, I've said this a few times, but it's like status quo isn't an option anymore. So we have to look at how do we build more resiliency into what we're doing? How do we rethink and use this opportunity, not as just a time to like solve the, the problem of tomorrow. You know, what do we do about fall? But let's think about how do we actually deliver on that promise of education? How do we make it really meaningful? If a student is going to spend 45 minutes in class, let's make those 45 minutes meaningful. Let's make them educational. So it's like, how do we think about using this as a time for innovation? And I think those institutions who say, you know what? Got it. This was a forcing function, but I'm not just going to solve for tomorrow. I'm going to solve for the future. And I really want to rethink it. I think there's a lot of ways to, to get really creative and do this in service to those that we serve, which is the students. Yeah, let's hope there are some institutions for whom that really serves as a catalyst to, to move yeah, to, towards more modern models. Obviously, Minerva started quite recently as, as a bit of an experiment, re rethinking university by challenging many assumptions. What are maybe a couple of things that you changed your mind on or that you needed to refine? Um, you mean as we sort of approached Minerva, learnings as we've gone? Yeah, exactly. Ah, so, yes, of course, we've learned some really good lessons along the way. Um, they range the gamut. Um, Number one, I think we learned sort of the, the right amount of material and the right amount of sort of homework that students can absorb at any point in time. So, you know, I think just refining everything from what we ask students to do as preparation to the amount of material that we cover in classes and all of that. Like we've continued to refine every lesson plan we continue to refine. You know, did we have the right exercises? Did they work? So we don't look at Minerva as being stagnant. It wasn't like, oh, we created this whole thing and now you know we're just out there doing it again and again and again. Every time every lesson is taught, we take the input from the faculty, from students who've been in the class, and we continue to refine and refine and refine. So in terms of learnings, you know, we are learning as much as an institution and on the education side, as I think all of our, our students are and, and faculty as well. 
you know, I think we, we've gotten better and better at, you know, how do we help the students, you know, immerse in the cities? I think you were asking about that earlier. You know, when we started, boy, we had so much programming, no one could possibly figure out how to get to everything and everything they wanted to do. Ruthless prioritization was sort of the thing that we were constantly telling folks, but now we've gotten better and better. What are the high impact opportunities? What are the things that are going to make the biggest difference? What are the things that are going to provide the most value? So we're constantly refining ourselves, you know, how we think about this to continue to make it a better and better experience. But, you know, we believe we're learning as much as we go, um, which is, I think, important. We don't want to become stagnant as we've seen other institutions do in the past. And what's your broader vision for the higher education sector? Um, because to to some extent, I find it hard to to imagine a world where traditional universities ditch their buildings, their athletics, their their whole educational model, and just transition over to to pretty much what you are doing. But would that be your ideal future, or what what should higher education look like more broadly? Well, I don't think everybody should look like Minerva. I, you know, I am so proud of what we've done. But really, because I see the students, I see what happens when they're ready to graduate. And I cannot imagine a world without these students, these graduates going out and making a difference. So, you know, I think what we've done is pretty special, but I don't think that that's right for every other institution. But what I do think every other institution needs to do is, number one, take a hard look, you know. Are you really educating the way you want to? If you're going to put on your website that you're teaching skills, like we're teaching students how to think and how to be resourceful and how to be entrepreneurial, how are you teaching those things? And to be really deliberate. I think uh, kind of putting ego aside is actually a really important part here because there are some other things that are happening and not being afraid to say, gee, maybe we can learn from somebody else. I think that those are important things for any institution to do. So do they need to do exactly what we're doing? Absolutely not. But maybe we've spurred them to think, gee, we ought to take a look at our general ed again. Or, you know what, maybe we haven't quite interwoven the way we uh, want different courses. Or let's start to give formative feedback. If we can help other institutions just start to rethink, that is, I think, a win for society. So um, I'll make a tiny little plug uh, just because I think it's it's useful if people, you know, when we built Minerva, we had a lot of people who started coming in and saying, can you help us understand what you did and why you did it? And it got to a point where we just couldn't hold all the meetings. So, you know, the founding team wrote a book. It's called Building the Intentional University, Minerva and the Future of Higher Education. It's not a short read. It's about 400 pages. And it's it's essentially, though, the recipe book of what we did. So it's what we did, how we did it, and why we did it. And at the end, it says, you know, if you just take some aspect of this and help that to evolve your thinking of how you're educating the next generation, we all win. Yeah, I already just ordered a book uh, when I was doing research for this for this podcast. It, it looks fascinating. And for me, actually, the main takeaway from, from what, I, what I read so far and what you were saying is this clarity on how you're teaching skills. Because that really seems to be quite often uh, where it breaks down, where you have nice learning outcomes, but no clarity how they're going to be achieved. Yeah, that's um, that's exactly right. And thank you for ordering the book. But it, you're exactly right. It is, it's about intentionality. That word means so much at Minerva. And I think that's 
the word I would encourage, intentionality and resiliency. If that's the two things you take away from this as an institution or if you're a student evaluating a school, do they know what they're teaching? Do they have a plan for how they're going to teach it? Am I going to know if I'm learning? And is it going to survive no matter what? Both the education being meaningful, but also the institution's ability to deliver. Um, I'd just like to pick up on, on this point about students evaluating schools. Um, I remember yeah. listening to Ben Nelson a long time ago where he was making this point that we don't actually value education by tending to go to the top-ranked universities, even though we know that universities much further down the list provide better teaching. How reasonable is it, though, for students to give up on the big names that are often seen as the entry ticket to, to careers? Yeah, it's an interesting challenge in higher ed because brand matters. It matters a lot. And so a lot of times people will make their decision just because they've heard other people, you know, mention it before. They've known it for their lifetime. It was their dream school. Um, it's in the rankings. And, you know, I don't have an easy answer for that, except that it is incumbent upon, you know, organizations like Minerva to help people understand why education matters and why you have to ask the questions. I wrote a piece a few years ago that were, you know, here are the questions to ask. I'm not going to tell you what the right answers are for you, but here's the questions you ought to ask and just make sure you're making an informed decision. It's funny, if they had a Minerva curriculum before they made their college decision, most of them would probably make a different decision because we teach them how to evaluate claims, how to actually, you know, debunk assumptions, you know, how to think differently about this. You know, it takes someone being bold to not follow the path everyone else has. But, you know, again, I, I've talked to the students who just graduated. I just saw a couple of them were posting their graduation success on LinkedIn. And they said, boy, I never would have made a different choice. And now knowing what I know, like, I can't imagine if I had gone to a traditional program, how limited my scope would have been. So um, I think it's incumbent upon us to help people understand the difference. And I hope that those of our students who are graduating and sharing their stories will inspire others to take similar, more innovative paths, whether it's at Minerva or someplace else. Mm -hmm. What is your initial experience uh, with students entering the labor market, uh, maybe less known brand? Do, do they manage to communicate that their education was strong? Yeah, I mean, they do incredibly well in the interview process because we have helped them over the years learn how to handle a novel situation. So they have these habits of mind that, that we've essentially taught them, right? We talk about habits of mind and foundational concepts. A habit of mind is just something that becomes automatic. So you're in a novel situation and you know how to adjust. You know how to read your audience. You know how to communicate what you're talking about. So they have done very, very well through the interview process, but then even more importantly, once they get on the job. And, you know, I could name the who's who because every university puts up the slide. Yes, we have a student who's at Google. Yes, somebody is at Twitter. Yes, somebody went to Uber. Yes, somebody's on Wall Street. Yes, someone's at a nonprofit. Yes, they're in some of the most prestigious science labs at some of the top, top universities. You know, they're getting into graduate schools. It's the who's who. But what is so important is when they get there, the impact that they're having. Uh, you know, we have one employer that made an offer to one of our graduating students and their senior HR director flew out. This is a organization based in Japan and flew out to ask us to help convince that student to take the job because he was their number one recruit globally. And this is an undergrad. So 
these are the stories and the feedback that we're hearing. And we do have constant communication with industry because we think it's really important that we make sure that we're not talking to ourselves, but that we're actually talking to those who are trying to figure out how do we think about bringing in great talent to help solve really challenging problems. Great. Uh, to wrap up, I, I just have two or three questions but more about you. Um, so the first one would be that, that obviously most of your career hasn't been spent in education. So what brought you into this field? Yeah. Um, so my background is really quite a quite focused more on marketing and building things. But when you think about what we've done at Minerva, we had to build from scratch. So I joined Minerva when it was really just a PowerPoint presentation and an incredible vision. And I came here because I too am a parent. And I realized that the importance of education just couldn't be undervalued. And how critical it was that we had this whole area of higher education that I felt was becoming almost inaccessible by so much of the population. And, and to think about if we really could make this mark. I met Ben Nelson, our founder, and we were supposed to talk for a half an hour. And after a two-hour conversation about all the things that we thought were broken with higher ed that we needed to take on the challenge, and he said, you know, you got to come help fix this. I came home to my family. And Lucas, I said to them, if I don't do this, I think I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. And that was almost eight years ago. And I just, I felt it was like a calling. I, I know that sounds kind of hokey and, you know, people talk about mission driven, but to me, I wanted to make an impact in my career more than just, you know, selling consumer packaged goods, which I did earlier in my career. And I was in the publishing industry, which I loved. And these were all meaningful things, but nothing as meaningful as helping to educate the next generation because I want them to make this world a better place. So that was really my inspiration. That's great to hear. Um, and I know many people listening to this podcast are either in the process of, of building educational innovations or thinking about it. Um, so what is maybe a piece of advice that you would give to your younger self when you started out in education? Um, I think I'd give this to anybody regardless of what you're building. And that's be really clear on what you are building and then ruthlessly prioritize to get there. Because it's so easy to want to serve every need for every person, right? And that's very, very difficult. You know, when we set out thinking about Minerva at the very early days, we had to think about, you know, who is the audience that we want to support? And how do we think about building something that is really ideal for that, that group? And then you prioritize like crazy. Once you've got your, you know, foundation, then you can start to expand from there. But I don't think we would have been as successful as we have been if we were trying to do too many things at once. And, you know, we have the benefit now. We've built out a university program. And as we've talked about, you know, proof points and it's there, it's thriving. And now students are applying. And now we're able to take that educational model to other universities. We're able to take it actually into the corporate world. We're able to take it into the high school world. So all of a sudden, many, many doors are opening up. But I think if we started out and said, we want all those doors from day one, it would have been very, very difficult. So focus like crazy, get the first foundation and then build from there. That sounds like brilliant closing words. <laughs> um, is there anything I should have asked but didn't? 
No, I mean, I just appreciate you interested in thinking about new models and, and pushing the envelope with your podcast, having people come and share very different ideas. I think the only way to evolve is to constantly be listening to what is new and what's happening and to figure out how to make it relevant for your own institution. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Education for Social Change. If you enjoy it, please share it with at least one friend. Also, if you have any thoughts or feedback, I'd love to hear from you. You can find my email address in the show notes. Finally, if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast, that would be much appreciated. Next time, I'm speaking to Mia Lianage about decolonizing universities. Since George Floyd was murdered, there have been lots of discussions about universities' colonial legacy. And among other things, Oxford's Oriel College has finally agreed to take down Cecil Rhodes' statue. Mia just wrote a report for the Higher Education Policy Institute in which she argues that decolonizing universities takes much more than that. It requires a different approach to the curriculum, to pedagogy, and to institutional culture. We had a wide-ranging conversation that I'm sure you will enjoy, so stay tuned.